Now, uh, today is the eighth day of Passover. So, uh, uh, remember, last Shabbat morning, we talked about uh, the uh, fact that uh, today, especially among the Lubavitcher uh, Chassidim, that uh, they have this uh, additional Seder, Messiah's Seder, looking forward to the final redemption. If you go to the Chabad website, you'll find it. And if you Google it, you'll find a few different references to this. This is not something, I'm not making it up. You, you know, it's definitely, uh, definitely there. And uh, it's very interesting because if you paid attention to the Haftorah portion today, the Haftorah portion is filled as a great messianic promise, right? It's not a coincidence that that's the Haftorah portion for the last day of Passover. Now, usually our Shabbat service is not on the last day of Passover. It's just somewhere like in the middle or something. But uh, on the last day of Passover, there's this great messianic promise that is read uh, because of the understanding that at Passover, that Passover has to do not only with memorializing our past redemption, but looking forward to the ultimate consummation, our future redemption, as Israel, as Jewish people, to the ultimate redemption uh, at the end, which means the uh, coming of the Messiah. And, uh, and of course, uh, we know, and we talk about it at the Seder and other times uh, as well, that indeed the Messiah has come, Yeshua has come, he is the Passover lamb, and he appeared uh, when he came, and he's going to appear again. Uh, but the Messiah has indeed come, and today we embrace him. And we can experience a portion of this redemption uh, uh, today, actually experience it. Uh, but we also look forward to the final redemption. You know, uh, don't we often read uh, in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, we groan, and then he says, yes, even we ourselves groan. You know, we who, who have uh, embraced Yeshua, we who have the first fruits of the Ruach HaKodesh, yes, even we ourselves groan. Oy. Right? Uh, because life is filled with, as we would say in the old country, tsuris. Right? Uh, life is filled with stuff. You know, who as a believer has not been disappointed about something in life or regret something somewhere along the way? Or have had uh, uh, something, you know, really uh, unfortunate happen in your life. We all have something. Not only that, and if we, uh, for whatever reason, uh, live on that island somewhere, uh, if you if you just look outside the window, you see all kinds of things happening uh, in this world. And so, yes, even we ourselves groan, but. There is a hope. It's not we ourselves groan and that's it and just pull the covers over my head and uh, that's the end of that, you know? No, we look forward to the redemption of our bodies, he says there in Romans 8, that, that there, is, there is something to look forward to, even if we don't see it in this life, see? And so when you come to this Haftorah portion, this really speaks to us throughout the ages. It speaks to our ancestors when it was first given to them, uh, and it speaks to us today and to all generations looking forward to the Messiah. So we are going to take a look at that Haftorah portion. So if you 
If you have your Bible there, you can open it up to the very end of uh, Isaiah chapter 10. So what's happening here, it's very interesting actually, because what's actually happening historically at the end of chapter 10 uh, actually comes to pass uh, what's happening prophetically, I should say, what Isaiah is talking about at the end of chapter 10 actually comes to pass, uh, and Isaiah talks about it in chapters uh, 37, 38, and 39, and it's also spoken about in 1 Kings. And what it is, this uh, is talking about after this northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed by the uh, Assyrians, right? And everyone is scattered everywhere and all that. So the Assyrians, now that's Assyria, okay? Uh, uh, we could say Syria by another place. No, it's uh, uh, the same as uh, what Babylon would be, okay? Uh, or Mesopotamia, or around where like Iraq is today, okay? So it's not Damascus. It's not that. That existed then, you know, Syria. Uh, but that's not what Assyria is, right? And Assyria was the uh, big uh, empire uh, that uh, Israel and Judah both uh, uh, feared greatly. Uh, so the northern kingdom of Israel has already been exiled. They're gone. So now you have this king, and his name is Sennacherib, right? That's his name, okay? Uh, and uh, he has his eyes set on Jerusalem now, okay? And Hezekiah is the king, right? And Hezekiah is like wringing his, wringing his hands. Now, Hezekiah was, uh, did a great thing in this context. And if you ever visit Israel, you'll see this great thing Hezekiah did. Uh, I mean, long before anybody ever came up with the idea of being a civil engineer, uh, he had this great idea. And that was what uh, nations would do to... Um, basically uh, kill off another people. Remember, they lived in, they had walled cities, right? So uh, what a, 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 um, an army would do is they would wait them out. They would like surround the place and they would never be able to get food and water. So they basically starve to death, you know, and die of thirst. That's what would often happen. So Hezekiah had this idea. And what he did is he had his people dig underneath the wall and go to a particular spring so that water could come from underground so that they could outlast the enemy. And today, if you go to Israel, you can actually walk in that tunnel. And it is rightly called Hezekiah's Tunnel, right? Uh, and it's fascinating because, I don't know why I'm saying this now, but anyway, it's fascinating because when you uh, go, you see that it's not straight. So they were digging at both ends, right? And so they're digging and they're digging and they're digging and they're digging. And they realized when they came to each other that they were not exactly uh, facing each other. They were a little off. So uh, depending on which way you go in this tunnel, uh, you take a left turn and then you, and then you go out. So it's kind of interesting. But they were able to do that in those ancient days. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So anyway, back to the story. So Hezekiah is wringing his hands. 
and uh, you know, uh, and the army of the uh, the Assyrians are at a place called Lachish, which is just north of Jerusalem. And all the little towns, Nob and this one and that one, these towns are all like just north of Jerusalem somewhere that you read at the end of chapter 10. Uh, and uh, when, you re- when you read later on in these other, when you read in either 1 Kings or in Isaiah 37, 38, and 39, you read this narrative of what happens. So the king sends this guy up to the wall and he starts heckling Hezekiah, like saying, what is your God going to do? We have you surrounded. Look what happened to Israel in the north. There's nothing you can do. Ha ha. You know, that kind of thing. And like poking fun at them. It's, you have to understand that's the attitude that, that in this narrative that, that this guy has. Okay. Uh, and so then Isaiah hears this. He turns to the king and he says, don't worry. God is going to get you out of this. And so what happens? Something happens back in Assyria, and Sennacherib is called home, uh, and, they, and they leave, and Jerusalem is spared. Of course, what ultimately happens is the Babylonians overtake the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar comes to power, and ultimately Judah is destroyed later, later on. But that's the background uh, uh, of this. And so what the prophecy see, is saying is that the Assyrians are mighty and the Assyrians are strong and, and, and the Assyrians are like a mighty forest, but they're going to be cut down. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, uh, the, kings of Israel, the kings of Judah are going to be decimated or are decimated. But salvation will come, like out of the ground. See? Uh, and uh, this gave them hope. Now, they did not see the people in that day, they had a temporary stay, you might say, but they did not see this redemption. But you see, they could hope and trust in this redemption just as we do in our own world. And so let's take a look here uh, at the end of Isaiah 10 and and through chapter 11. uh, And hopefully in our own world, we will um, uh, be able to make you know, an application today at the end of Passover, the end of uh, memorializing the past redemption, looking forward to our future uh, redemption. So uh, we see here in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 10, okay? Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down. And those who are lofty will be abased. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Now here he's talking about the Assyrians. He's not talking about, uh, you know, uh, the tree representing the, the kings of Israel. But uh, he's, he's talking about the Assyrians. That, that uh, as mighty as they are, the mighty will fall, right? Okay, then we see now this great promise in chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, so not only do we see that, uh, you know, the, uh, the Assyrians are like a forest and, and they're cut down, but what we see here in chapter 11, if, if you are familiar with, 
uh, with First and Second Kings, or you have taken the MSI class on the, uh, the First Prophets course, where we talk about this, and some of you have, and I asked this question a few weeks ago even, but I'll ask it again today. What is the theme of First and Second Kings? Failure. It's all about failure, First and Second Kings. You have king after king after king after king, and they all fail. Even Hezekiah, even Josiah, they all ultimately fail. None of them brings about the kind of reform, uh, the kind of promise that we read about, about when the king comes. You know, all the nations will be gathered together and, uh, and in that day uh, righteousness will prevail. They all ultimately fail. Some are better than others. Like uh, Josiah is really good, right? But he also ultimately fails. Uh, and in his case, uh, when he dies, everything that he had tried to do completely falls apart. And it's like over, really, at that point for, you know, for the uh, Jewish people. If, if Bible history ended at the end of 2 Kings, we would just call it a tragedy. The whole story is a tragedy. Because what is the big picture, just historically, of what happens? Okay, the people go in the land. They're never able to completely live in peace, except for maybe a short period of time. Uh, and uh, uh, David, King David, the great King David, uh, yes, God indeed forgives him. Uh, and he is able to consolidate the, uh, you know, the, um, the spiritual and the political all together in Jerusalem. We see, you know, his issues. He has a son, Solomon, who is big and strong and builds a temple, but who sows, sows the seeds of rebellion in his life. He dies. What happens? The kingdom splits. It splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And what happens to both of them? They both disappear. The end. That's not a good story, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so that is why you read here uh, this promise that uh, Isaiah makes that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That, uh, you know, this uh, 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 shoot means from the stem of Jesse that out of, out of Jesse, the father of David, will come a shoot, another David will come another David. And then a, a branch or a, a sapling, okay, from his roots will bear fruit. So the point of the passage is that basically the sons of Jesse have failed. And at a time when there is no king and when we might say we least expect it, out of the loins of Jesse will come a shoot. And, uh, and further explained as this uh, uh, sapling, netzer, yes, which means branch, but more like a new growth, not just a branch, but like a new growth, will bear fruit. Now, historically, we know that, uh, you know, when Yeshua came, it was not a good time at all uh, in the history of the Jewish people that uh, at this time, 
uh, you had a priesthood that was compromised, a priesthood that basically sold out to the Romans, right? That's why you have high priests. They're not called Yaakov or Shimon or Avraham, but Caiaphas, right? How many Jewish people do you know named Caiaphas? Okay, let's face not too many, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, they were uh, uh, collaborating with the Romans. A lot of it was because they uh, had no choice uh, but to do so. Uh, and so the priesthood was compromised. Those who were trying to reform the priesthood had b- become reduced to uh, legalism. You had people who were living in the desert because they couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, you had most of the people just called Am Yisrael uh, who were just trying to, uh, trying to live with the Roman occupation and Roman oppression. Okay, Morally, all you have to do is read the history of the Maccabees. And you see, after a while, it's hard to tell who was married to who. Okay, Because you had all kinds of strange things going on. In fact, when you read uh, the extra-biblical literature, especially the Maccabees, it's very interesting, just to read it as a history, that at one particular Sukkot, okay, the people were so angry uh, at their leaders, the Jewish people were so angry at their leaders. You know on Sukkot that we have, um, uh, uh, we have lulavs and etrogs, right? So you know those etrogs, they're like uh, mutant lemons right? So there's a story that uh, uh, at Sukkot, out comes the, the leader of the Jewish people, and what do people do? They throw the etrogs at, at them. They're so angry, uh, and all kinds of stories like that. Uh, and and uh, 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 it was a time when you wouldn't say that, oh, see, now the people were like, there we go, uh, the people were uh, waiting for the Messiah with bated breath, and, and so they had reformed themselves, they turned to God, and so now the Messiah could come. No. When they least expected the Messiah to come is when he came. In this, all set there? Good. Okay. Uh, when they least expected it in the sense of deserving. Now, it was a, a period of time where they were, uh, you know, there was a messianic fervor because the people were so uh, desperate, you, you, you might say. But uh, there was no king in Israel when the Messiah came, okay? So we see a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And so the Messiah Uh, did indeed uh, come. Now, when you look at the world uh, around you, you might say, and rightfully so, well, where is he? I mean, that's a good question. That's not a, uh, you know, that's not a bad question. I mean, frankly, uh, when someone told me that Yeshua was the Messiah, the obvious question to ask is, so why is the world still the way it is? Because according to all these passages, it's not supposed to be that way when the Messiah comes, see? Uh, and, and so I, I, we have to answer that question. Now, it says he will bear fruit. 
and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Then it says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Okay? All right. So now, th- this one, the Messiah, when he comes, he will bear this, uh, this kind of fruit. Now, when Yeshua came, certainly he bore this fruit in and of himself. But it's interesting, if you turn over to Isaiah 53 for a minute, the quintessential messianic passage of the text, there's a little hint here of why the world is still the way it is. So when you read at the beginning of Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? It's like a rhetorical question, like not a lot of people. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Wow, look at that. Just like Isaiah 11, out of nowhere, okay? And like a root out of parched ground. Now, it's interesting that if you go down, if you keep your finger here and you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, you read here in verse, um, let's see, he's the root He's the shoot and he's the root. I think it's in verse 9. Is it 9? No. Uh, nations will resort to... In verse 10. Verse 10. Okay? I'm always like one off. All right. So you see in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And then in verse 10, it says, Then it will come about on that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Okay? So he is the shoot and the root. Okay. So you'll notice in Isaiah 53... He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Which means that he didn't come in such a way that objectively we all know he's the Messiah. But he comes in such a way that we don't recognize him. We don't recognize him. Not only do we not recognize him, but we feel sorry for this guy in a sense because what a a life, you know, uh, we don't esteem him. Uh, He's despised. People hide their faces from him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, forsaken of men. And it says despised. You see that two times? That describes certainly Yeshua the suffering servant. See? Okay. So clearly in Isaiah 53, in the text, we see that he is not recognized as the Messiah. Okay? Now, Yeshua himself, especially in Matthew chapter 13, uses the word mystery. We talked about this uh, maybe even last week, I don't know, or the week before. Mystery. That's something that had not been revealed, like new revelation about the coming of the Messiah. And what Yeshua says is that this kingdom is being inaugurated, and like just like he's not recognized, so this kingdom is not recognized. And just as he suffers, so those who embrace Messiah in the reign of the Messiah suffer and are unrecognized. The body of Messiah is the body of Messiah. He suffered, we suffer. When you read, especially like 1 Peter, that's what he's trying to say. 
okay? Uh, that the day will come, right, when we appear with him in glory and so on, but, but, but not now, see? And so just as uh, uh, Messiah suffers, so uh, we suffer. But getting back to Messiah himself, not recognized by uh, this world, all right? Okay, so going back now to Isaiah chapter 11, He's not recognized, but this is who he is. So now we read here, uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Interestingly, if you now turn to Isaiah chapter 42, you read at the beginning, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I have put my spirit upon him. And so you see here, that this suffering servant is the same one who is a shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, the same one who's despised and rejected of men and acquainted with grief. Okay? So then it says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, these terms are all terms used to describe uh, kings in different places. Most of these terms are used to describe, for example, Solomon. And uh, these terms are used to describe in varieties of places when you raise up, you know, uh, elders among you. Uh, 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 again, uh, uh, Solomon, uh, the kings of Israel. It's very interesting. Also, um, what's also interesting is counsel and strength. The phrase in Hebrew for counsel and strength, that phrase is used in two other places. And both places are used to describe the Assyrians uh, who are uh, planning to attack uh, a Judah. And so it's very interesting that the one who really has counsel and strength the one who really uh, has the strategy for victory is the king of Israel, not the king of Assyria. And not only that, but the one who is the fulfillment of the promise made to David of the king who will sit on his throne forever has all the qualities that the king is supposed to have. And wouldn't it be great to live in a world where... You have a king with wisdom and understanding, meaning uh, this phrase is used together in a variety of places, uh, but, also, but specifically in the narrative about Solomon being given wisdom and discernment. Same, same word, bina. Wisdom and understanding uh, uh, in ruling and making just uh, decisions. See? Uh, and so, uh, and then knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, knowledge and the fear of the Lord means not just a knowledge on, on how to be king, but really an intimate knowing, an intimate knowing of people. And the phrase, the fear of the Lord, uh, as you may know, is used in lots of places. Uh, you read about it in, for example, Psalm, a number of places in the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, which speak very poetically, and that's no coincidence. And for example, Psalm uh, 19, I believe. And we read uh, there. 
in verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Okay, what is this fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's something that's really good all the way through. In fact, I'm not going to take the time to read all of them. Uh, you know, uh, you have uh, concordances, uh, whether in book form or electronically. Fear the Lord. You'll find them all. Okay, so what is basically the fear of the Lord? In a nutshell, the fear of the Lord is a recognition of who God is. Uh, a recognition uh, that he is sovereign, that he is the one whom we're accountable to, uh, that in every circumstance that there is, God is involved, uh, of recognizing that we uh, serve this uh, living God. That's what it means to have the fear of the Lord. Not one thing in particular. Uh, it's not about doing an etymological word study on the word fear. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God, but the fear of the Lord is like this all-encompassing um, euphemism for knowing the Lord and living in his world and recognizing who he is and who we are in it, okay? So this king is going to, is going to be that kind of king, and that's why you read uh, with the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Okay? Now, then it says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Oh, it's like it's repeated, like that must mean something. Okay, yep. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. In other words, he's going to always do the right thing. When he uh, judges, it's not, there's not going to be any loopholes it's not going to be uh, this lawyer beat this lawyer, and so that's why uh, you have one who's a victor and one who isn't because his closing argument was better than the other guy. Nope. It's all going to be just right. Okay? Uh, and notice it says, With righteous he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So, in other words, wow, you know, he's uh, not, uh, in saying all this about understanding and wisdom, he's not going to be a pushover either, right? And uh, uh, those who uh, reject the counsel of the Lord are uh, re rejected. He is truly the righteous king. Then, not only do we see that when he reigns, He's going to be the perfect king, but the world is going to be different. The world is going to be like reconstituted in a certain way. Wow. So what do we see? The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion and the fatlings together, and a little boy will lead them. So natural predators and enemies will no longer be feared. And that even those who are natural predators and enemies will no longer be that way. Now, you could say it's just a metaphor for the, uh, you know, for uh, nations. But uh, I would say that uh, basically what this is saying uh, is that the curse back in Genesis is lifted. And no longer is there enmity in the world. 
there is no longer hostility in the world, whether we're talking about animals or people or whatever. And a little toddler is really what this, a little boy, that's stressed in the text. Like a little baby, a little, a little child, not just like a young man. That's a, that a little, a little child will lead them. In our world, that would be preposterous, right? But not in a reconstituted world. Then it says, the cow and the bear will graze and, the, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. So, you know, probably what this is referring to is just reiterating that in the animal world, all will dwell in peace. There are some who say they will even eat differently. I don't, I don't know, but uh, I think we get the picture. And again, the nursing child, look at this, first it's the little boy, and now it's the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Wow. This describes, as in other places, uh, a reconstituted world where there is no longer the effects of the sin of Adam and Eve that we read about in Genesis. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters, uh, as the waters cover the, the sea. So the whole world is going to be changed. Then, now, so far, this is the king of Israel. Yeah, you know, uh, I know we have a very hard time doing this, but you have to like place ourselves back here, okay? So this is all a, a promise, basically, uh, to these people in Jerusalem saying that, you know what? Ultimately, that there's going to be this king that uh, was promised to David, right? Okay? Uh, and uh, all over the land, one might say, there's going to be peace and and, uh, you know, and, and no longer any uh, of these uh, uh, problems. But then he begins to say, for the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day, which is a telltale sign of in that day means, oh, that's the, the consummation, that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. The nations, the, all the surrounding peoples, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place shall be glorious. Okay? So, of course, that passage is quoted in the Brit Hadashah. Uh, Paul quotes it, right? Or parts of it, anyway. Uh, and so, this becomes not only is uh, he going to bring this kind of peace and tranquility to Israel, but to the nations as well, and to the whole earth as well. Now, in verse 11, he goes back to uh, Israel, and he says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover a second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the islands of the sea. Okay, And he will lift up a standard for the nations, and he will assemble, assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but what he's basically saying in this passage, 
that, the, that this king will be a banner, a sign, a signal for the nations, and that Israel and Judah is going to return, and no longer will there be a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. No longer will there be hostility among uh, the Jewish people, but we will be one, and the nations will also be one and know, uh, and know this, uh, and know this uh, Messiah. Okay? Then if you'll notice, if you go down to verse 16, interestingly enough, it says, And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day they came up from the land of Egypt. That is uh, fascinating. Uh, if we were to go back further, if you go back to verse 15, it says, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river. The point of that is, is that there is this reference to the redemption back in Egypt, you know, and that he's going to do it again. Like he did it then, he's going to do it again. So, we see this great promise of a reconstituted world. We see this great promise of, uh, of no more uh, hostilities. There's lots of other passages where we could turn to about, uh, you know, uh, machinery of war turning into farming utensils and how people won't even learn war again. And there's, there's similar passages. Uh, but here we see that out of nowhere this king will come. And we explained already uh, that... Uh, that more revelation from Isaiah himself tells us that he's going to come unrecognized. And so Messiah Yeshua has indeed come unrecognized. And you know what? Almost the whole world still does not recognize him. Almost the whole world doesn't really know him uh, or views him as something else and describes him in all kinds of other kinds of terms than who he really is. And the fact is, uh, is that there is a remnant today of Jewish people and Gentiles, right? People of many nations who have embraced the Messiah. And we, one of the great lessons of this passage is that when we see that this is what his reign is characterized by, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord, he's going to judge rightly and, you know, so on and so forth, that is the character of his reign, then just as, remember we said, just as he is unrecognized, we are unrecognized. Just as he is persecuted, we are persecuted. But just as he is righteous and reigns with with ethics and morals, guided by the fear of the Lord, so we are called to demonstrate that ourselves. And we are, just as Yeshua came into this world to make a difference in people's lives and make a difference in this world, so we are called to make a difference in people's lives and make a difference in this world. And uh, just as Yeshua uh, uh, came and said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so we need to be demonstrating the presence in this world of Messiah's reign. And the way we conduct ourselves and the way we deal with those in this, in this world and, and what we say, how we act, and what we do. See? Uh, and uh, that gives us, I believe, tremendous meaning. It's not just about uh, witness to this person so they go to heaven when they die. It's not just what that's about. 
It's about turning the world upside down for Yeshua. For Yeshua. See? And we need to believe that it happens via the Ruach HaKodesh and the power of God and in the way we conduct ourselves. And that means in the values that we have in this world and that we live according to those values. People will see that. That is the alternative life that is available to people in this world if we would really live it out. See? And, you know, let's recognize this. Again, you know, the Messiah has come, right? And, and so we need to remember that when you look at a passage like 2 Corinthians in the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when it says, Therefore, if any man is in Messiah, he is a new creature. Okay? The old things have passed away. Behold, things become new. And usually when we apply this, we'll say, if you know the Messiah, you are a new creature. Right? And that's true. I mean, you've been restored. That's true. But it means something more than that. It doesn't only mean that because... I know in my Bible, you know how you have those cross-references and things like that? Does yours say, when you go into the, uh, that little cross-reference thing in verse 17, or there is a new creation, okay? Well, here's a bulletin for you. This passage could, very, could be translated. Therefore, if any man is in Messiah, there is a new creation. Meaning that we are part of a new creation when we are in Messiah Yeshua, that we are part of the unveiling of a new creation. We are part of an unveiling of a new heaven and an earth. And that we are like the beachhead in this war of the new heaven and the new earth. That means that our message and the coming of the Messiah is about so much more than what we think. It's about peace in this world that comes via the King, Messiah, and He is the one in whom we focus. Now, we might say, but you know, is that really going to happen in our day? You could have preached this the last 21 centuries, and you don't see it. Well, remember the Brit Hadashah portion for today in uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11? Well, I think it's fascinating, of course. First, I'm just going to say this very quickly. In verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Wow, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So when we read a passage like this, and we say, well, you got North Korea, you got Iran, which is going to become like North Korea to us, and this and that, and oh, we got this president, and we got that, and we don't like this party, and oh, this, and oh my God, oh, it's terrible, right? It's like a morass. You think it's going to get better? You think, oh, we're going to have the savior in some political candidate? Yikes, that is depressing. Okay, that's depressing, okay? No, no. We trust in what we don't see. But in trusting what we don't see, we live in such a way as if we see it right in front of us. We live in such a way that it is an absolute truth. That's why in 1 Peter, a living hope, living hope. We live in the hope today, you see? Uh, and so that's what faith is. 
That's, by the way, why I like to say when we're praying for those who are ill, you know, wondrous faith is trusting in the Lord when you have a disease. And that the sign of godliness is not necessarily healing, but the sign of godliness is perseverance. Remember that. Okay? So, here in Hebrews chapter 11, you got this great faith, this great faith, that all these people have this great faith. But when you go to the end, just like Theo read, it says, you'll notice it say, you know, in verse 35 it says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. But then there's a turning point right here in chapter 11. Right here, it's like a left turn takes place. But then it says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, they would not compromise, and they were killed for it. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains, imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, tempted, uh, put to death with a sword, uh, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And then it says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, forget the number 12 there in your Bible. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, everything that gets in the way, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then it goes on to talk about sufferings. But when we read a passage like Isaiah chapter 11, Let us read it with the eyes of faith. Let us recognize that although it is very depressing to look at world events and, you know, sort of like the way the wind is blowing, let us recognize that there is indeed hope, and the hope is in Messiah Yeshua uh, and his reign, uh, and uh, that uh, we are called to live as if he is the living king right here. And we are to live reflecting his character in this world. Uh, and our message is, is that there is a king, there is a life as we, as we share this message. And remember that Yeshua started with 12 people around him, and they began to turn the world upside down. And so let us go forward with that very same message. And let us be encouraged to know that the day will come where there will be a world leader who will rule this whole world perfectly, in, in total peace, in tranquility, Uh, We might say a return to the Garden of Eden. And that is whom we place our, that's the basket that we place our eggs in. The kingdom of God, the reconstituted world, the fulfillment of the kingdom of David, the great promise that God made to Israel for the nations. And so let us rejoice as we leave uh, uh, Passover, one might say, thinking about that future redemption. And as we count the days of the Omer, let us count each day moving forward to that final consummation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we are not left to just hope for the best, 
Thank you, Lord, that we have a faith that is real and focused on the truth. Lord, we do pray, God, for this lost and dying world. Lord, we do pray for people to turn to you. Lord, we do indeed pray for revival. And may the body of Messiah resurrect itself from the dead. Lord, in a day that surely needs to see a real manifestation of the power, Lord, that only you provide. Not just in a, in a really interesting service, but in the way that we conduct our lives. May people see the integrity. May people see wisdom and understanding. May people see counsel and strength. May people see knowledge and the fear of the Lord. May people see you, Lord, in us. May people look at us and say, yeah, that really is how I want to live. And Lord, may we be able to make that kind of difference in people's lives in this world, God. And uh, we do indeed look forward to that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Yeshua is indeed Lord and King in this world. We pray in Messiah's name.